Again, there's some Bibles towards the front. The last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And last week we finished chapter 1, you recall. And as we finished it, John, he, he hears a voice as uh, of a trumpet, a loud voice. And he turns to see the glorified Lord, the resurrected Jesus. And he is standing in the midst of these seven lampstands, holding in his hand the seven stars. And the lampstands, as we are told, as we end at chapter 1 of Revelation, that they are this, uh, representing the seven churches there in proconsular Asia. The seven stars representing the seven angels or messengers of the seven churches. And now as we go into chapters 2 and 3, remember in verse 19 that the book of Revelation gives us an outline here. Um, the outline given to us is write the things which you have seen. That's chapter 1. John, again, seeing the resurrected Lord. He gave a description of that. We looked at that very carefully. And then second of all, write the things which are, that is chapters 2 and 3. That's the church age. And then write the things that will take place after this. That's chapters 4 to the end of the book. And so that, that outline is very important for us to understand. Otherwise, we'll get all mixed up you know, in looking at this book and, and seeing what is being told to us. But chapters 4 through chapter 22 is all yet future. So what we're going to be looking at in chapters 2 and 3 are the things that are. We're going to see that Jesus is going to turn to each one of those churches that are in proconsular Asia today that's called Turkey. And if you were to map out these seven churches, it would be kind of like in a circle, starting with Ephesus all the way to Laodicea. And there's Jesus in the midst of these seven lampstands, the seven churches, and he will turn to these churches and he will address them. He's going to be writing a letter to them. And as we go through these seven churches, these seven letters, they are very, very powerful. I think chapters two and three are uh, some of the most important chapters that we have in the book of Revelation. And we want to take our time going through it because as we do, there's going to be a fourfold application. Number one, these are seven literal churches that are in Asia Minor at this time that had these characteristics. They are not the only churches that are in Asia Minor. They're not the only churches that are in the Roman Empire that have been established. We know that Paul, when he writes to the churches in his epistles, he writes to seven churches. He writes to the church at Rome that we're studying on Sunday morning. He also writes to the church at Thessalonica, the church at Corinth. He writes to the church, uh, uh, churches of Galatia. And then he writes to uh, Colossae. He writes to Ephesus and he writes to the church at Philippi. So Paul writes to seven churches. And then we know that Jesus, he writes to these seven churches there in proconsular Asia, literal churches that are existing at the end of the first century that have these characteristics that are going to be described. The second application that these seven churches that are Bible scholars and commentators that will tell us that they are characteristic of seven successive periods of church history, starting with Ephesus all the way to Laodicea. And I think that we can make a case for that. We'll talk about it as we go through these, these churches, the church of Ephesus being the apostolic you know, age that goes to the end of the first century. And then when we go through Smyrna, they're the persecuted church. And they are you know, that church that is existing from uh, the church age from uh, uh, 100 AD to 300 AD, where the church was very, very heavily persecuted. So we'll make a case for that. So the, it represents seven successive periods of church history, ending with Laodicea, which is the lukewarm church, which can speak of today. The third application, which is really important, is that these are seven types of churches that you will find today. As we read these characteristics in these seven churches, that Calvary Chapel, Greeley here, is probably going to fit into the characteristics of one of these seven churches. And that's why this study is so powerful. I think about what if the Lord was writing to us? If, if the Lord would to write a, a letter to Calvary Chapel, Greeley, what would he say? You know, are we more of an Ephesus church that we're going to study today? Are we a Sardis church? I don't think we are. That's the dead church that he, he writes to. The church of Philadelphia, which was the faithful church, I hope that we are. 
I hope we're not like Laodicea, that is the lukewarm church. So as we make application as we go through this, we can see as Calvary Chapel, how is it that we're doing? You know, uh, do we fit into one of these seven categories? And then we can make it personally. The fourth application is that these can represent seven types, if you would, of Christians. Are you an Ephesus Christian? Are you, you know, a Sardis Christian? Are you a lukewarm Christian, uh, a Laodicean Christian? So that's why these uh, two chapters are so powerful and so important for us to take our times to go through this. And as we go through chapters 2 and 3, my Bible, and it should be in your Bible, are all red letters. This is Jesus speaking. John is dictating. And, and these chapters are the words of Jesus that he's giving to the church. Now, as we look at these seven letters, there is also not only a fourfold application, but there's four patterns to these letters as well that are going to be very important. Important. Number one, we're going to see that the Lord's going to say, I know your works. He knows the things that are going on in uh, each one of these churches. He knows what's going on, the works that they're doing, uh, the things that are taking place. And he knows what's going on in our church as well. He knows what's going on in us individually. So not only does he know outwardly, but he knows inwardly as well. He knows what's going on in our hearts. He knows what's going on in the heart of this church. And that's why as we read this, he says, I know your works, which can be very comforting, but also be very convicting as well. Second of all, the second pattern that we're going to see is he gives a positive affirmation. Jesus finds something to affirm in these churches. And we're going to see there is going to be an exception with the church of Sardis. And there's going to be an exception with the church of Laodicea, where he will not have anything good to say about those churches. But the others, he gives this positive affirmation. This is where you're doing well. That's what we're going to see tonight. This is where, you know, um, I, I commend you in. And, um, and he will do that. And we can look at that and say, okay, as a church, we should be doing those things. We should be taking note of those things. After the positive affirmation, he will give a corrective exhortation. That is, here's where you need to repent. Here's where there needs to be correction. And again, there's going to be two exceptions. There's the Church of Smyrna that we'll see next week, the persecuted church. And then there's the Church of Philadelphia, the faithful church. So remember that as he's given correction, he is doing that so they will do well as a church. So they can turn away from those things, repent from those things, and be established once again and doing well. And it's the same with us as a church. If we go through this, and, and certainly uh, me as the pastor, I can say, you know, that, that's something that uh, we need to be corrected in. That's something that we need to be careful of because he wants us, Calvary Chapel, to be doing well, and he wants us as individuals to be doing well. And you hear so much in, in the church today. I get magazines and materials every single week about, you know, what the model of the church should be and what's the trend of the church and all these things I want a biblical perspective I want to go to these seven churches and these seven letters I want to go to what is told to us in the book of Acts I want to be one that's looking at Paul's letters to the seven churches that he writes to and that's where we establish the model for of the church not in the latest trend or the latest popularity or what's the latest fad so here he gives that correction because he cares for the church and he wants them to do well. And so uh, as we see that, um, he is giving that uh, correction to them as he addresses them. And, um, and then fourthly, uh, we see that Jesus in these letters, uh, he gives an eternal motivation. Jesus gives a promise to those who, who um, overcome. Now, as he gives a promise to those who overcome, we hear that word a lot about overcomer, and, and we need to know the definition of an overcomer uh, because 1 John chapter 5, verse 5 tells us that he who overcomes the world is he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So we hear a lot about overcomers meetings and overcoming this. Uh, who is an overcomer? It's one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So these letters here, again, we see that, that he's going to bring correction to them. Uh, there will be that uh, exception to the Church of Philadelphia, the Church of Smyrna. You know, what's interesting is um, 
that he is going to bring correction to the church at Laodicea. And what is interesting about that is you see that Paul wrote to the church of Colossae that to Colossae, he mentions a letter that he had written to the church at Laodicea in about 61 AD. And he says, you and Colossae, read the letter that I wrote to the Christians there at Laodicea. And then he says, you and Laodicea, read the letter, this letter uh, written to Colossae. We know the letter to to church at Laodicea that Paul wrote is not in the canon of scripture. We don't know what it says, but I would have loved to have seen what, what was in that letter because 35 years later, Jesus writing a letter to the church at Laodicea. He has some very strong corrective words to say to them. So we look at this and we can learn so much from all of this and, and the eternal promise as we know that he says, you who overcome, here's a special promise for you. Uh, one commentator, I believe it was Warren Worsby that said, heaven is not just a destination, but it's a motivation. And Jesus gives them this eternal motivation based on eternity. And we see that all throughout the New Testament, don't we? Because Jesus would tell the parable of the minas and the talents. Um, he says there's going to be rewards given to, to you and what has been entrusted uh, to you. Paul tells us that we will stand at the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema reward seat of Christ. Second Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to see it in Romans chapter 14. And then Jesus at the end of this book says, Behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. So we're going to see these promises given in these seven letters are very comforting, very amazing. They are promises for you and for me. So let's begin to look at the church of Ephesus, the first church that is mentioned here in chapter 2, the book of Revelation, he writes to the angel, the church of Ephesus, right? And again, that word angel, angelos in the Greek, means messenger. It is used in reference to, to heavenly angels, um, and it can also refer to human messengers, such as the pastor of the church. So there's a couple thoughts on commentators. Is it a message to the angel, perhaps thinking that there's an angel that is assigned to each one of these churches? We do know that angels are real. We know that the book of Revelation speaks a lot about angels. And even as you look at the early church, the early church, I think, was very sensitive to angels. They were very much aware of angels. Matter of fact, when Paul was writing to the Corinthian church, you might recall that in chapter 11, that he's writing about headship. He's writing about authority. And he says to them in verse 9 of that chapter, he says, remember the angels. Isn't that interesting? Kind of like, listen, you need to have order. You need to have, you know, uh, this order that I'm establishing in the church. And remember the angels because they're, uh, um, you know, amongst you. And, and you don't want them, you know, to, they're uncomfortable when there's not order and things like that. It's almost like as you read between the lines. <laughs> but Paul says, remember the angels. You might recall also in the book of Acts that uh, in the book of Acts, when Peter was arrested by Agrippa, he was put in prison. He had just put James to death. Uh, and so he thinks, if I can get rid of Peter, uh, then uh, that's really going to do damage to this thing called Christianity. So he arrests Peter, put him in prison. An angel comes and frees Peter. Meanwhile, during that time, the Christians are gathered together in a home and they're praying for Peter's release. And as you read the book of Acts, you see that um, all of a sudden there's this knock on the door. It's Peter. And this young girl, Rhoda, goes down uh, and says, who is it? It's Peter knocking at the door. And, and she runs back upstairs. She doesn't let him in. And she goes upstairs and here they are praying, oh, Lord, please release Peter. Please let him go. Hey, somebody says they're Peter at the door. And they said, oh, it's not Peter. It's just his angel. And I find that amazing because, first of all, they're praying for his release. And then when he's released, they're kind of skeptical. Oh, it's just his angel. And then they go back to praying. Now, if I was to say that there's an angel out there in the parking lot, that this sanctuary would, would empty out in about 30 seconds, all you guys running out there to see this angel. So they're very aware of angels in the early church. So some say, is it an angel that's assigned to each church? I kind of like that idea. Uh, if there's an angel that's assigned to this church, um, 
I think he's a great angel doing a great job. But personally, I think that more likely is talking about the pastor of the church. And as we continue to read, we see that not only uh, to the angel or uh, the messenger, the church at Ephesus, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I, I like the fact that as these stars, we were told, as we mentioned last week, that they represent the seven stars in his right hand, the seven messengers, the seven pastors. And that brings me great comfort that I'm in his hand. Brings me great comfort. And you see, all of us as believers, we are in his hands. And that's good to know, isn't it? Especially when we go through difficulties or hardships and the trials and the rough weeks and the rough circumstances that, Lord, I'm in your hands. You have me. And, Lord, that I would not want to be anywhere else. But thank you. So it brings comfort to us. And Jesus said, where two or three are gathered, I'm in the midst. And he's here in our midst here tonight. And we want him in our midst. So the church of Ephesus, we know we read a lot about the church of Ephesus in the New Testament. It's a church that I think that we have a, a timeline uh, of this church more than any other church in the New Testament. Paul would establish the church of Ephesus in about 54 AD on his third missionary journey. He would make Ephesus his base of operation as you read Acts chapter 19. And we know that as he would go into uh, the city of Ephesus, it was a, the largest uh, port in the world was there right along the seacoast. And it was a place of, of idol worship. Um, Ephesus was the major city. They had an amphitheater there that held 25,000 people. It was not a coliseum, but, but 25,000 people could gather in this amphitheater. It is in this amphitheater that many Christians ended up dying. We know that Ephesus was the center of uh, worship to Diana, an idol, and the temple Artemis was there. It was one of the seven wonders of the world, the, the, the Temple Artemis with huge columns, magnificent. You can go see the ruins today. And Greek writers say that that temple uh, was greater than any other of the wonders that were built. It was absolutely magnificent. And Paul the Apostle, as he comes in, he comes into the city, a major city in Asia there, today called Turkey, uh, a large port, a lot of people coming in to worship Diana, buying idols from the silversmith. He begins to minister, and all of a sudden revival breaks out. And we know as we read in Acts chapter 19 that Paul, he begins a school of discipleship called the School of Tyrannus. And there he's teaching young men, you know, um, the scriptures in Acts chapter 20, he would say to the Ephesian elders that I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God's word. He taught them all of the Old Testament. And it is from there it is believed that in Acts chapter 19, it says all of Asia was impacted by that third missionary journey. All of Asia was touched by the gospel. And those men would go out and they would establish these churches here that are throughout proconsular Asia. So Paul would stay in the city of Ephesus for at least three years. Most scholars believe about three and a half years. That was longer than any other city um, that he stayed in on his missionary journey. Uh, the second longest was Corinth. He stayed in Corinth, we know, for a year and a half. But Ephesus um, was uh, revival breaking out, the school of Tyrannus, discipleship, disciples going out, and they're planting churches throughout Proconsul Asia. There was a lot of fruit, but there was also a lot of difficulty. Because the people were getting saved, you read that in Acts 19 that they were bringing their magic books and, and they were occultic books and they were burning them. And the reason they were burning them is it's like when you burn something, that's it. We're not going back to it. It is done. It is burnt. We're not going to go back to it. And they stopped buying those little idols of Diana. So the silversmiths, their you know, business was drying up. And they began to riot. And the whole city was, you know, in a, a big uproar. They wanted to kill Paul. They ended up in that amphitheater there. And Paul was driven out of the city of Ephesus. 
And when he's writing 2 Corinthians, that he says to them in chapter 1, in the beginning of the chapter, he says that you know that when we came out of Asia, that we were pressed beyond measure. We were despaired even of life. We were despaired of life because it was so hard and it was so difficult. But he says, the God of comfort who comforts us in all of our tribulations will bring comfort to you. And you may be here, and even as Jim is sitting next to his wife, that he brings comfort in all of our tribulations, whatever it is that we've gone through. And even as we come to that point of press beyond measure and, and to the point that we're at the end of our world, it is David that says that I cry out to you, O Lord, and attend to the prayer, attend to my prayer. At the ends of the earth, I come to you. Because he was praying that at a time that he was at the end of his world as his son Absalom had rebelled against him and he's out in the wilderness. He doesn't know what's happening. And to know this, you who are going through trials or difficulties or hurt, that he is the God of comfort who comforts us in all of our tribulations. So Paul had a very difficult time as he left there. And he would also, he would warn them in chapter 20 as he met for the last time of the Ephesian elders. And he would warn them about false teachers coming. And he would then, after he leaves that first imprisonment in 62 AD, after that he would leave Timothy to deal with them. And he emphasizes the teaching of the word. And so as we look at this, we're going to see that that. Um, it is Jesus that's going to address this major church, the first one. And you got to understand, as we talked about, that John here, who's dictating this, that John, it is told to us historically, there's notes that he left Jerusalem right before the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. He would leave and go to Ephesus. And John was there, an elder at the church at Ephesus, along with Timothy, Timothy would be killed in 97 AD. He was killed uh, as he was beaten to death because he was trying to stop this idolatrous parade that was going on. And so that's what history records about Timothy. John, he had been an elder there, and John had written from the city of Ephesus his letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And keep in mind, what was the emphasis of those letters? It was love. And as Jesus says to the pastor, to the church at Ephesus, I'm sure his ears, he's really attentive to what Jesus is going to say to the church that he's an elder. So let's begin to look at that, what he says to the church at Ephesus in verse 2. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. So this is a list of good things, isn't it? As he begins to give um, this positive affirmation, he says, I know your works. I know your works. And he will say that to each one of the churches. He knows their works. He knows our work as a church. He knows your work as an individual. And that's good news. Because sometimes we can think, Lord, do you see what I do? I'm I'm living for you. I'm doing my best. I'm serving you. The word works here, eraga, where we get our word energy. He knows the energy that you put into trying to please him, living for him, serving him. And as we read this, he says, I know your labor. In some translations, it reads toil. It means laboring to the point of exhaustion. I see your toil, your labor. It was a very busy church. It was a working church and in a tough place to minister. And God does look for workers. Jesus would say that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And God uses those who are willing to roll up their sleeves and to serve and to labor. Who are willing to walk with him and to be used of him. And if you want to be used of the Lord, then he is looking for workers. He called Moses when what? Moses was herding his father-in-law's sheep on the backside of the desert. It was 
Samuel that came to Jesse's house to anoint the new king of Israel. And he goes through all the sons there in the house of, of Jesse. And he says, none of these are the king. Do you have any more sons? Yeah, he's the one out in the field. He's with the sheep. He was the shepherd boy. And it was David that was the greatest king that Israel ever had. Moses was a shepherd of two and a half million people. We know that when he would call Elijah, for example, he's plowing 12 yokes of oxen. And there it was Elijah that would anoint him. And he would have a double anointing. We know that Peter and Andrew, when Jesus called them, what were they doing? They were casting their nets. And John and James, they were mending their nets. He looks for workers. And I so appreciate the workers here. For you who labor, I appreciate so much all the ministry that takes place here. You know, when we went to four services a week and, you know, who knows, sometime this year we might have to go to a fifth service. We might have to go to a fourth weekend service if it keeps filling up. But, but as we, you know, consider that four services, there's people saying, you can't do four services. There's no way you can have Sunday school teachers and nursery and other pastors who are telling me that. I said, oh, I bet we can because God will provide for that. And he has done that. But so many other ministries that take place, ministry that we don't see that takes place inside these four walls. And I want to remind us that as we toil and maybe for you, it's raising your children in the ways of the Lord. Or maybe it's taking care of an elderly parent. Or maybe a sick relative. Or you're serving here and whatever or out in the community somewhere. Please remember what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. And I remind our staff of this all the time. Because we can get tired, you know, in doing ministry. We don't get tired of ministry. But we do get tired in ministry. And even Jesus did. He had been healing the people of all kinds of sickness and disease, and he gets into a boat, and he falls asleep. Why? Because he was tired, even when a storm was raging. He would say to his disciples, hey, let's get in a boat, and let's go, um, you know, uh, get away. And, and, and they would go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Of course, when they got there, 5,000 men, you know, met them, and he would feed the 5,000. But he would get away with his disciples. And we need to learn to do that. But we do get tired when we're, you know, making a living and providing for our family and raising our kids and serving the Lord and living for the Lord. And it is Paul that says, you be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And whatever you, that you're doing for him and how you're living for him and raising your family in the ways of the Lord, listen, it is not in vain. He sees you. I know your works and I know your labor and I know your patience. It means to bear up under pressure. These Christians would be under tremendous press pressure. There was persecution going on. And the Lord is still working this in me, patience under pressure. But you might remember that in Romans chapter 5, when we went over that, that we can glory in tribulation, the apostle writes. That word tribulation in Romans chapter 5 means a burden. Uh, so why should we glory in, in, in burdens? Because it produces patience. God works that patience in me. Lord, I don't know what to do. And I can't figure it out. And I can't make it better. But I'm going to wait on you. I'm going to wait on you. And waiting on the Lord is something that he will teach us. It's something that is not very popular in our culture today. We like things done instantly, don't we? And then we can carry that into our spiritual lives. But we need to learn to wait on him. To allow him to work, to teach us, to show us. You know, and, and we see his faithfulness. And then patience produces character, that is godly character. James writes, let patience have its perfect work in you, that you may be perfect, that word means mature and complete and lacking nothing. And then character produces hope, because I can look back at God's faithfulness to me. And in the past, and knowing that his love was with me. And Lord, you, you are faithful. And I saw you work in ways that otherwise I wouldn't have. 
So I know your works, your labor, your patience, and you cannot bear those who are evil. And this was a good thing. They stood for truth, and um, they were ones that would point out those who are false. And I want to read to you, as Paul was uh, in Acts chapter 20, when he was addressing the Ephesian elders for the last time, he would say to them, For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, the shepherd of the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And then he says this, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years, I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So Paul, as he's meeting for, with the Ephesian elders, they would not see him any longer. He would then be in prison in Rome after this. And he says, I warned you for three years with many tears that there's going to be those that are going to come into the flock. They're going to be, you know, uh, speaking perverse things, making disciples after themselves. And apparently that happened. So after Paul, after his first imprisonment, he then, as you read 1 Timothy, that he says, Timothy, I know you wanted to come to Macedonia with me, but I left you here in Ephesus. And he writes that first letter to him, the second letter to Timothy. And the major emphasis of those two pastoral letters is teaching the word of God. Get them established in sound doctrine. Teach the word, Timothy. And Timothy would do a good job with that, along with John, who came over and was an elder at this church as well. So they were ones that they established sound doctrine. Um, they were ones that uh, would point out those who are false. And they were a church that um, was not accepting that which was evil. And, and today we see, of course, that in our you know, the church at large today, there are more churches that are accepting that which is evil, accepting that which is wrong. Oh, I hope that we would always stand for the truth of God's word. And listen, you and I are going to take the hits as we do that because it is getting darker out there. The things that I see going on and policymakers, it, it grieves me. And he says, I'm commending you as a church. You've rooted out the deceivers who have come in your midst. You, you have tested them. You know, the early church had problems. They dealt with deceivers and the Judaizers and the Gnostics. And 1 John chapter 4, John had written 10 years before this, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Listen. One of the things that I think, this is my own personal opinion and my honest you know, observation and being a pastor for many years, that one of the things that I think is needed in the church is discernment. A lot of Christians do not have discernment. And Paul would write that there's going to be a falling away in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. When he wrote to Timothy, he said that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. You've stood for the truth. You pointed those out who are wrong, that are false, who are deceiving, and we need to do the same thing as a church. And you have persevered, verse 3 says, and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. What can happen is that many get excited about serving the Lord, but after a while they get weary. They pull back. They stop serving. Again, when Paul was addressing the elders at Ephesus, I just read it to you in Acts chapter 20. He, remember that he said, take heed to yourselves and then minister to the flock of God. It's so important for us that we be cultivating a deep personal relationship and closeness to the Lord and with the Lord. Because we will become weary at times. So Jesus commends them. Hey, you've stayed with the task. You've kept the truth. You pointed out those who are false. You have labored. You have patience. You haven't become weary. You're doing well in these things. They were a busy church, just as we're a busy church here at Calvary Chapel. Just like you can be a very busy Christian. But then verse 4, he says something. He says, nevertheless, I have this against you. You have left your first love. You've left your first love. He didn't say you lost it. He said, you've left it. 
this is so important for us to consider. Because this can happen to us as a church. It can happen to us as an individual. We get so busy doing things. I picture this church, you know, the bulletins are rolling out and there's all this activity and there's all these Bible studies going on and ministry that's taken place. I mean, this was a busy church laboring. He mentions that twice. Your patience, you're going through difficulty, you're pointing out those who are wrong, but you've left your first love. And that can happen to us at Calvary Chapel. We can be so concerned, and it is a priority, that, that we are in sound doctrine. And, and it's great when we're doing ministry, what the Lord is doing. But we can be so busy that we end up leaving our first love. In our own lives, it can happen. Your love for the Lord, our love for Him as a church gets cold, distance. And I wonder what John was thinking when Jesus said this. I have this against you. I have this against you that you've left your first love. And how John, must have, his heart sank when he heard that. Because he had written from the church of Ephesus, being an elder there. And when he wrote the emphasis again, as I said, was what? Love. He was known as the apostle of love. And his heart sank. You've left your first love. I remember when, you know, when I was, before I got into ministry and I was young and I was hungry for the word and, and listening to, you know, I was listening, had CDs back then. Some of the young people don't know what a CD is. I still got a vehicle that plays CDs. Um, can't find any, so we have some old teachings here, but the CDs go bad after a while. Uh, cassette tapes is what I'm saying, not CDs, sorry. The cassette tapes. The, the young people, now CDs, some of them, they don't even know what CDs are. <laughs> but the cassette tapes, I even remember the eight tracks. <laughs> remember those? But there was the cassette tapes. And I used to go through a lot of those every day, just taking in the Word of God, just growing. I was so hungry and stuff. And then, you know, I, I just, I didn't know, I didn't think I could be used of the Lord or anything. But I remember I went to a Bible study at a little church that was called Calvary Chapel. And the first Bible study I went to was here in Revelation chapter 2. And when Pastor Larry said that, nevertheless, I have this against you, you've left your first love, and I thought, that hit me right between the eyes. And I remember it impacted me so much, thinking that, you know, I've been so busy trying to... to know it and the Bible and, and study and all of this, but yet my love for him was cold. You know, because I grew up in life where I was taught, and I'm thankful for my dad, but my dad taught us that work is good. And I know ministry is work. You know, the First Timothy chapter 3, the qualifications of an elder, that if you desire... To be an elder, it's, uh, you know, good work. It's good, but it's work. There's one thing that, that I expect from my staff and from the pastors here is you work. And one thing that I don't like to see in ministry is laziness. Because it doesn't please the Lord. So in ministry, I know that you know, I may not be the smartest pastor. I may not be the most dynamic, the funniest, whatever. But I'll outwork you. I will outwork you. And I know that that can be a problem with me if I am not careful to where I am so busy that my, my love begins to come, become cold for him. And I want to be like Paul, who would write to the Corinthians that it's the love of God that motivates us. And I know that you work hard too. And that's why I love living in this area. I love, you know, Greeley and Well County because you guys work. You work the land. You work hard in your jobs, your businesses. And I so appreciate that. But we can get so busy with work and the cares of life that our love for the Lord begins to become distant and cold. You've left your first love. 
So remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, verse 5, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from his place unless you repent. Listen, this is important for us to understand. Jesus is saying he will not be in a church where there is no love for him. He will not be in a church where there is no love for him and for each other. He just won't be there. You just will not perceive him in a church where there is no love. The Pharisees and the Gospels, man, they did all kinds of work. They boasted it in their work. They tied, they fasted, they knew the scriptures, but they left their first love. And Jesus said, you're like a bunch of whitewashed tombs. You're inwardly, you're full of dead man's bones. Outwardly, you're all polished. So what do we do? Jesus here, he gives us a formula if we've left our first love. He says here, and we call it the three R's. Number one, remember. Remember from which you have fallen. Remember what it was like when you first got saved. Do you, do you remember that when you first came to the Lord? I do. When I first received the gospel, when I first came to him, it was like a weight was taken off my shoulder. I was forgiven. I saw everything differently. I had such joy in my heart. I'd wake up thinking about the Lord. I went to bed thinking about the Lord. I, I was a new person. Before I came to the Lord, I didn't care about people. You know, I was working out in the woods for the Forest Service in a little cabin on 20 acres, and I didn't see a whole lot of people, didn't have a whole lot of friends, and that was just fine with me. And I remember, you know, when I came to Christ, and when I gave my heart to him, that my outlook was different. And he says, remember what it was like. What was it like for you? What was it like when you came to the Lord? And maybe you grew up in a, in a family and that's, a, you know, as small as you can remember. And, and that's a wonderful testimony. But I know that some of you, you can look back and you can feel like that you were alive. I didn't realize how dead I was inside until I came to Christ. I was hungry for his word. I, I, I couldn't wait to study the Bible. I, I would read it and not understand it. That was okay with me. I would devour tapes. I was learning. And, and I remember I'd sit there, and, and over time, as I was listening to Bible study, going through it, I remember sitting there going, oh, the love of God. The love of God. That he would love somebody like me. That he would forgive me. Remember from what you have fallen. Second of all, repent. Recognize that because of the trials of life or the busyness of life or whatever reason that I've left my first love and then say, Lord, I want to come back to you. I want to draw close to you. Change direction. Repent is a very wonderful word. You know, our culture has made it a terrible word or even in some circles of the church. There are many churches that won't use that word repent because they picture, you know, a snarly old, you know, pastor with a bony finger, you know, saying, you need to repent, you know, and it's in all of this. It's a wonderful word that we can repent. It just means change direction. There are people that we talk to constantly that they're caught up in deception and darkness and drugs and alcohol. And they said, I wish there was a way out of this. I wish I could change direction. And we can give them Jesus and say, turn to him, go to him. Quit going in the direction that you're going. So repent. And then the third R, that is, do the first works. What were you doing when you first got saved? Were you excited about serving him? Were you in fellowship? Were you doing you no know, devotions and prayer and worship? You know, you couldn't wait to go to church. You were hungry for the word. I've seen people that they get saved and they're so hungry and they're so excited, but over time passes on, it's like, oh, I've done that. They're still saved, but there's a drifting away. There's a coldness in their hearts. There's a coldness in their hearts. You remember that it was Martha in Luke chapter 10, that story, she's cooking dinner and, and there's Mary at the feet of Jesus worshiping and, 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 and then Martha comes in. I just picture her coming in with her hands on her hips saying, Jesus, you tell my sister to get in here and help me. 
And Jesus said, Martha, Martha. And whenever he said your name twice, you were in big trouble. So. <laughs> Martha, Martha, you're so busy. And Mary has big, the better part. He didn't rebuke her for serving. He said, Mary has picked the better part. And that won't be taken away from her. And I know for me in my life, I can have the tendency to have the Martha mentality. And I can drive that into church. And the Lord has says, you know, Jeff, Jeff, you need to be careful. Because may Calvary Chapel be a place where devotion has taken place and the love for Christ is, is seen and evident here in what we do. And it's the love of Christ that motivates us. So remember, repent, and, and return. I add a fourth R there, not to add to the scriptures, but remain there. Remain there. And if you're here tonight, you've left your first love. The three R's are given to you. And you can say, Lord, I don't want my love to grow cold for you. I don't want this church, our love, to grow cold. And he says in verse 6, but this I, you have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Who are the Nicolaitans? Well, Nico, um, it, it literally means to conquer, to rule over. Nico means conquest. It's where the word Nike comes from. You know, buy a pair of $250 Nike shoes and you can run faster than everybody else. You can rule on the basketball court and you can slam dunk and all of this. That's where the word, you know, Nike comes from. Nico, to rule over. Laetin, where we get the word laity, <clears throat> it means to rule over the people. The deeds of the Nicolaitans was to put a man, a clergy, uh, a pastor, a priest that ruled over the people. They said, you have to come to me. I'm going to rule over you. John dealt with this in the church of Ephesus. In Third John, he talks about Demetrius. Um, not Demetrius, Diotrephus is what he mentions. Diotrephus, he loves to have preeminence over people. Paul talked about it in 2 Corinthians, the so-called super apostles and prophets that were ruling over the people. And they were even ruling over them. He says, you allow them to even punch you in the face and you put up with it. And Paul says, we're not here to rule over you. We're here to be helpers of your joy. Sometimes people will say, you need to call these people up and you need to tell them to do this. And you need to tell them to do that. And they're not doing a good enough job in raising their kids or whatever the case may be. And you need to call them and I'm not here to rule over you. I'm here to be helpers of your joy. Oh, I'll bring correction. We'll deal if things are wrong. We'll let you know. But I'm not here to rule over you. And Jesus says, I hate that doctrine. I hate it because I want you to come directly to me, he says. And that's what's so wonderful about being a Christian. It's relationship and fellowship and closeness with him. And then in verse 7, he who has an ear, let him, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is for us because we have ears. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now, the promise of eternal reward to those who overcome. You eat of the tree of life. Better than any fruit tree that we can eat of here. But the tree of life. We have eternal life. Because Jesus Christ went to that tree, didn't he? The tree of Calvary. And he died for you and for me. Listen. We're going to go to prayer. Travis is going to come up. And then we're just going to end with a couple songs. And then he's going to close it. But... I want us to just spend some time. We get so busy in life. We get so, so, you know, so many things on our minds and heart that for the next few minutes, as we pray, and then we'll, we'll end with a couple songs, and then he'll dismiss us. If you've left your first love, will you come back to him tonight? I mean, in the honesty of your heart, you can say, Lord, my, my love for you has been cold. I've been going through the motions. You know, I've been distant. Um, I, I forget sometimes that it's about you and devotion and knowing you. Um, even though you're doing your best, you're working for the Lord, you're, you're serving, you're raising your family in the ways of the Lord, you're providing for them. Just go to him. Spend some time with him. 
okay? Spend some time with him in the honesty of your heart because he desires for you to come. He says, you've left your first love, so come back, come back. Remember what it was like when you first got saved. Repent and then do those first works, and it starts here tonight. Lord, I come to you to pour out my heart to you. And so, Father, we thank you for these words so important. Here, what was written to the church of Ephesus, such a busy, busy church. And Lord, um, we can get busy. We get busy as a church all the time, Bible studies, prayer meetings, staff meetings, counseling that takes place, all the services, radio. But Lord, we can forget you in the midst of all of it. Though we talk about you. And I pray if there's anybody here tonight, maybe you're here tonight, that you've never come to Jesus Christ, that he loves you, he died for you because of his love, that you might have eternal life and forgiveness. Will you look to his love and provision because he is your salvation? And you can come tonight and be a part of the family of God by recognizing your need for forgiveness that Jesus provided on that cross. He died for you and he rose again and he is alive and he's speaking to you. He's writing a letter to you right now to come, to turn to him, to put your faith and trust in him. Will you do that tonight, right where you're sitting? You can say, Jesus, I come to you and I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I ask that, Lord, you would hear my prayer as I ask that you would be my personal Lord and Savior. I believe you're alive, speaking to my heart. And I thank you for hearing my prayer, for making me alive, for forgiving me. And I want to know you, and I want to grow in my love for you, Lord, from this day forth. In Jesus' name. Maybe you're here tonight, you've left your first love, and you know that it's been cold and distant, and the Lord, his love remains with you, and he's calling you back to devotion and love to him for the better part. You've done nothing wrong. It's just you get caught up in the stuff around us or maybe the hurt that is in you. And for you tonight to say, Lord, I want to return to my first love. Have devotion for you and to stay there. Because you are everything to me. And Lord, I pray as we just continue to worship that you, Lord, just minister to our hearts. As we just focus on you. As we're calling out to you in our hearts. And then when we leave this place in just a couple minutes, that your love would be radiating in our hearts. So I thank you that we're here. I thank you for tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.